This is Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 4, 2019, the Gray Center co-hosted its second annual Administrative Law Symposium with the George Mason Law Review. The title we chose for this year's symposium was The Administration of Democracy. We were focused on some of the ways in which administrative agencies are involved in the democratic process itself. The day began with a discussion of the Federal Election Commission. Two scholars wrote papers for the discussion, uh, Richard Pierce of George Washington University and Bradley Smith, the former FEC chairman who now teaches at Capital University's law school. They were joined in the discussion by Chara Torres-Spellacy, a law professor who focuses on these issues, and by Trevor Potter, a longtime practitioner of election law. The conference was introduced by me, Adam White. I also moderated the discussion. There's also an, introdu- an introduction from the Law Review's editor-in-chief, Connor Woodfin. We hope you enjoy this. Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam White. I direct the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. And it's my honor and pleasure to welcome you this morning to today's conference on the administration of democracy. Now, as you may have seen, this is the second annual George Mason Law Review Symposium on Administrative Law. This is our favorite event of the year. We're so glad we get to do this with the Law Review and the students. When we inaugurated the series a year ago, we focused on uh, agency adjudication and the rule of law, a familiar uh, administrative law topic. We thought that this year, looking ahead to the next year's presidential campaign and congressional campaigns, it would be a good opportunity to pause and think and discuss the role of administrative agencies and public administration in the democratic process or democratic processes. And so we invited a number of scholars and practitioners to write papers and come and discuss these things. And I'll tell you the truth, we couldn't be happier with how this turned out in terms of the papers, the participants, and we're really looking forward to today's discussion. As I said, we're doing this in partnership with the George Mason Law Review. They will publish these articles later this year, or I suppose early next year, in the Law Review. You know, Usually what we do for these conferences is we post working paper versions online, for the conference, and then the authors end up publishing their papers in a variety of journals. This is the one event of the year where we do it the opposite way. We haven't posted any drafts yet so that the authors and the law review editors can work together to finalize the papers for publication. Now, before we introduce the first panel, I do want to pause to introduce the editor-in-chief of the George Mason Law Review, Connor Woodfin. Connor uh, was previously served as one of the Gray Center's uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton Student Fellows, and so we're so happy to see him now uh, working with the or leading the Law Review, and particularly happy that he can join us today. So, Connor, would you like to say a few words of introduction? Thank you, Professor White, and thank you to the Grace Center for uh, sponsoring and helping us organize this event. Um, as Professor White mentioned, as a former Alexander Hamilton Fellow, it's great to be back in this capacity. It's it's always a pleasure working with the Gray Center and uh, with Professor White um, to, to put on these events. Um, I would also like to thank our, of course, our distinguished authors and panelists who have devoted their time and intellect to this endeavor. Um, the best part of being a part of this is um, being able to facilitate such top-notch scholarship, and we think it's important. And uh, when we get our hands on these articles, you know, we'll italicize a few commas, and as Professor White said, that'll 
That'll be published in, uh, in volume 27, issue two of the George Mason Law Review. So we're looking forward to this panel. Uh, thank you to Professor White, the Gray Center, our panelists, and I'll turn it back over to Professor White to begin this uh, symposium. All right, and we have a whole table full of law review editors, so uh, authors, feel free to direct your complaints in advance to the students in the back of the room. So let me go ahead and introduce our first panel of the day. Uh, the panel is titled The Administration of Federal Campaign Finance Law. Uh, the discussion will center around or begin with presentations by two authors, uh, Bradley Smith and Richard Pierce. I'll introduce each of the speakers as it's their turn to speak. So we'll begin with uh, Professor Smith. Bradley Smith served at the Federal Election Commission from 2000 to 2005 and chaired the commission in 2004. He's now the Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Nault Professor of Law at the Capital University Law School, and he's the founder and chairman of the Institute for Free Speech. His paper we'll be discussing today is titled Feckless, a Critique of Criticism of the Federal Election Commission Structure and Possible Lessons for the Administration of Campaign Finance and Election Law. Professor Smith? I'm going to come up here to the podium. Just it seems early in the morning, it might help make sure everybody stays awake. So um, thank you, Adam, and thank you to the Law Review, and thank you for coming out early in the morning here. Um, so uh, talking about the Federal Election Commission, uh, I mean, one could argue that very few federal agencies get much respect, but there's probably uh, not many that get as little respect as the FEC gets. Over the years, it's been called a lapdog, a toothless watchdog, a watchdog without bite. It's been called pathetic and nuts, the little agency that can't. Uh, a favorite pun, which I've used for my paper titles, you can see it's feckless, get it? Um, it is, uh, and, and inexplicably, it was once criticized as a, quote, self-licking ice cream cone. I don't even know what that means, but it was uh, certainly not intended as a compliment. The failure of campaign finance reform to accomplish its objectives, and it's not something I'm going to belabor. I've got books and articles and so on on it. I think it's fairly inarguable, even amongst the strongest supporters, that it has failed to accomplish its objectives, are often laid at the feet of the FEC. That's precisely uh, uh, one of the things that says it's not accomplishing its objectives. Uh, it is said that the FEC was structured to be ineffective, that it was designed to fail. And in this paper, I basically argue the opposite, that it was not designed to fail, and that actually it's been pretty effective given the uh, uh, assignment, perhaps uh, uh, impossible assignment, that it has been asked to do. In this presentation, I'm going to focus on just uh, one of the critique uh, of the FEC, uh, given my time limits today. Uh, obviously, there are others in the paper itself. But this is perhaps the most common one, and this is the idea uh, that the Commission's 3-3 bipartisan makeup makes it prone to gridlock and therefore ineffective in administering federal campaign finance law. Now, the FEC, if you don't know, has six commissioners. It's unusual this way, three Republicans and three Democrats. And uh, uh, that is a uh, uh, not entirely unique. There are a couple other federal commissions structured that way, but it is certainly unusual. At the time that the FEC was set up, Senator Alan Cranston, the Democrat from California, noted, quote, we must not allow the FEC to become a tool for harassment. And I think everybody understood that this was a potential problem with campaign finance regulation with the FEC, is that it could become a tool 
for harassment. I'm going to come back to that later, but one can see how that would be. It's operating directly on campaigns and candidates and could easily uh, become something that was simply used by a commission majority to harass the opposing party. Um, the claim is that, however, this structure leads to perpetual deadlock. Oh, and, and just to add a point, the, the 3-3 structure then requires four votes to take almost any action. So you have to have at least some degree of bipartisanship in order for the FEC to pass a regulation or take different steps in the enforcement process and so on. And the claim is that this leads to deadlock, uh, quotes, uh, gridlock is built in, it's a recipe for stalemate, it is regularly crippled by 3-3 splits and so on. I want to suggest that, first of all, this is not true. Uh, the FEC's 3-3 uh, structure is primarily intended to make sure that one side does not take over for partisan advantage, but that doesn't mean that most of the time it, in fact, uh, uh, deadlocks or that most cases are ones in which the commissioners, simply the Republican commissioners vote for Republican candidates and the Democratic commissioners vote for Democratic candidates. Uh, from uh, One study from 1977 through 2012 of advisory opinions found that the FEC uh, deadlocked 3-3 to or three to two, sometimes we didn't have a full complement of commissioners, on just 3.7% uh, of votes on advisory opinions. The biggest study that's ever been undertaken on uh, what the FEC calls MERS, matters under review, that is enforcement actions, was uh, found from 1996 to 2006, there were tie votes on 2.8% of MERS, mm -hmm. uh, in which the commission ultimately uh, came to a 3-3 vote on whether or not to pursue the matter further. When I was at the commission in, in 2003, the year I was vice chair, the, the deadlock rate was 1%. In 2004, uh, the year that I was chair, it was 3.1%. Uh, so generally speaking, historically, this idea of deadlock has not been a problem. Although if you go back and read the literature for 30 years, this claim has been made regularly and vehemently that this is clearly the case, it deadlocks, it deadlocks, it's prone to gridlock. And the fact is, it's, it's just not true. Now, having said that, in recent years, over the last decade, there has been a marked increase in the number of 3-3 votes at the FEC. Um, a study by uh, then-Commission Chairman Ann Ravel in 2016 said that 30% of votes ended up in, in deadlocks. Uh, a study by the uh, scholar Mike France found that 20% ended up in, in, were ending up in deadlocks on advisory opinions uh, he noted that uh, after 2007, although before 2007 there'd never been more than a, a 6% rate on, on advisory opinion, 3-3 three, three votes. After 2007, it was 6% or more every year, peaking at 20% in 2012. Um, recently, the FEC was asked by Congress to provide data on any MER or any of these enforcement matters in which there was any tie vote at the commission at any stage of the proceedings, and it found that that was the case in 59% of the MERS, that there was at least one 3-2 vote. But that's a very misleading statistic for a whole host of reasons. First, of course, the fact that there's a 3-2 vote on one issue or a 3-3 vote doesn't really matter much of the time. It might have been a minor procedural issue. Uh, sometimes somebody will push, they'll have a theory of the law that they just want to get on the record and they know they're not going to get a majority for it and, and the vote goes 3-3 and then they take another vote and find the party guilty of a lesser offense or a different offense, a different theory. But also, it leaves out a great many actions. For example, many of the FEC's actions are, are done on what is called on tally. That is, they just pass a, a general counsel's recommendation around to the commissioners, and if they all say yes, 
then it goes through. So you don't have votes on the MERS. If we add those in, that deadlock rate drops to 26%. If we add in cases that, goes through, that go through the uh, Commission's Administrative Fines Program, which is a program the Commission implemented in 2002 when I was on the Commission uh, to make it easier, a streamlined process for fining committees for certain reporting violations. And if we add in the Alternative Dispute Resolution Program, another thing that we implemented in the early 2000s that takes some minor offenses out of the traditional uh, enforcement track and puts them into an alternative dispute resolution process. If we count those cases, the, the number of cases in which there is any vote, again, not a final vote, just a vote at some point in the proceedings that goes three to three, drops all the way to 15%. Can we live with that? I suspect we can. Because remember, again, the purpose of the 3-3 structure was to prevent one party from simply steamrolling the other and creating you know, its version of the law that's going to be helpful to its candidates. And for those who don't know, I've written about this extensively. I won't belabor it here, just to note that it is very easy to write a facially neutral campaign finance law that you know will hit the other side much more than it will hit your side. Because the parties, in fact, campaign in different ways. They have different constituencies, different kinds of things that they do. It's really not very hard to do. Note also that this deadlock rate may not be that high. For example, the Federal Communications Commission, during the chairmanship of Tom Wheeler, uh, had three to two party line votes on about 26 percent, uh, well, not about, 26 percent of its major matters as defined by the commission itself, right? If we put that into the FEC's perspective, that would mean, you know, we would assume that we would have three, two votes in the FEC on these cases. They were getting three, two votes on the FCC. Now, if you're on the FCC, you know, it matters. The idea is a collegial commission comes to more consensus, gets different opinions in. But in the end, it determines telecommunications policy and so on, right? And if it's good policy, voters will presumably reward the party in power. And if it's bad party policy, they'll presumably vote against the party in power. But that check fails in the election area. And this is the big problem we have with election regulation more broadly. Um, in elections, it works directly on the election results. So a party, and, and what is good policy as pertains to election regulation, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, in the Federal Communications Commission, you can say, are we getting, you know, better, cheaper broadband or something like that? At the FEC, what is good policy? It's pretty hard to say. So you could end up with three, two votes. Now, if you had the FEC going three to two with a single, simple partisan majority on 26% of its cases of what it self-defined as its most important cases with the majority party just steamrolling the minority, I submit to you that that would create a true crisis of legitimacy for the FEC. And in fact, that doesn't happen. And when the FEC does in fact, or is in fact accused of having partisan leanings, the very first thing the critics do, who criticize it for deadlock all the time, the very first thing they say, and this is almost uniform, is, oh no, takes four votes. Got to have some degree of bipartisanship. In other words, they, they understand themselves the crucial point of bipartisanship to the FEC's legitimacy. So what is it that they're really complaining about? Really, they complain that they lose. They lose some cases. By the way, we should note that, for example, a 3-3 vote in an enforcement matter isn't some deadlock, like nobody knows what that means. Oh, my gosh, what happens now? Everybody knows what it means. It means the case does not go forward. It's over. It's ended. It's just like if a vote fails in the House of Representatives, 216 to 216, right? 
It's like, you know, it's, it's not a tie and nobody knows what it means. It means the case is over. The case is ended. And these critics have never explained why they would prefer to lose four to two or three, they want an odd number of commissioners, why they would prefer to lose three to two or four to three than lose three to three. And I think the answer is because they don't really have a reason for that. And, and what's going on here, in other words, is we are substituting uh, a critique of FEC substantive decisions. And note these are decisions over many years, many different commissioners, different commission makeups, right? that they've just not been happy with some of the decisions that are being made, substantive decisions. But they are trying to disguise that as an administrative law complaint, I think because it distracts attention from the, from the inherent tensions of regulating campaign finance and the inherent difficulties of doing it and perhaps impossibility of regulating campaign finance in a way that accomplishes the goals that they claim it will accomplish. So um, with that... Uh, I want to emphasize, just to, to, to wrap up here, that, uh, again, the point I made earlier, in, in most fields, when the, expert divide, when the experts divide, when the experts on a commission divide, you may end up with a partisan result. One party implements its preferred policy, but it is ultimately a policy that will affect voters' lives in a way for better or worse, and in some small way factor into their decisions in voting. And in election administration, that sort of political control fails, right? A successful policy might be one, if I'm a Republican commissioner, in which I'm able to impose a, a rule that makes Republicans win elections, right? And that's what is a successful policy that kneecaps my opponents in a direct fashion that SEC regulation or FTC regulation or FCC regulation cannot do. By the way, a good parlor game, if any of you want to play it later in the day, is you go around the table and each person has to come up with a new federal agency by just changing one letter in the, in the abbreviation, and you see how long you can go until, until somebody loses. Um, in any case, I digress. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> we should ask ourselves as well, when we think about election administration, most of these things uh, can affect results, but there's no right or wrong answer, really. In other words, there are reasons why one might favor proportional representation over our system, general system in most states and so on, of first-past-the-post, right? Plurality winner wins, single-member districts. There are reasons why we might favor more early voting, and there are reasons why we might favor less early voting. But none of these things are, are, are things that have sort of inherently correct answers on which there is broad agreement of the public. These are hotly disputed uh, political issues or, or theoretical issues of what makes for the best type of democracy, whether we have nonpartisan elections or partisan elections. And these are value choices, and they come into campaign finance as well. What is undue influence? How much influence are people do? When is somebody's form of influence illegitimate or unfair in some particular way? What do terms in the statute mean? What does it mean to say, for the purpose of influencing an election? What does it mean relative to a candidate? What does it mean a thing of value? Many of these are very vague terms, and they're not terms that are subject to sort of a technical expertise uh, in the way that one might find, again, in FCC regulation, or perhaps if one's regulating for anti-competitive practices in the market or something like that. And so I suggest, uh, again, in the paper I talk about many of the other critiques at the FEC and, and, and respond to those. I find those equally wanting, uh, equally short, and again, equally in the end based on a complaint about the substance of what the FEC has done, uh, which is, is fine, but 
you know, you don't get to appoint the commissioners. Everybody's got complaints about every agency. They're appointed by the president, they're confirmed by the Senate, and they reach the decisions uh, that they reach. But I want to bring up sort of a warning, which is we've had a big press in recent years to push more and more campaign, not campaign finance, but election regulation into nonpartisan bodies with the idea ultimately that perhaps we can resolve these sort of questions uh, in a technocratic way. And I'm going to suggest that these are, in fact, actually inherently political questions. And oddly enough, having stressed the need for bipartisanship at the FEC, I would suggest that perhaps we'd be better off if we had a traditional enforcement practice that we had up till the 1970s throughout most of the country, which is enforcement of the laws here was left to prosecutors, district attorneys, U.S. attorneys, attorneys general, and so on around the country, who operated under professional norms. They were often partisan office holders, but they still operated under professional norms, which have probably been chewed up a bit in the recent decades, but are still, I think, fairly prevalent. And in the end, they are directly politically accountable. People can see if they think, right, that their county prosecutor, who's typically elected, is on a political vendetta against his political foes. Right? And there's an electoral accountability there that is lacking when we put these things into independent agencies. And when we put them into independent agencies, we lose that accountability. We have the illusion that we might do away with partisanship and that we'll get all the happy results we want. But in fact, it won't resolve the difficult questions. And those difficult questions are there in elections. Again, in gerrymandering, for example, what is a proper form of districting? How much should we weigh communities of interest? What types of communities of interest? How important is that versus geographic compactness, right? Do we want competitive districts or do we want districts in which candidates feel safe, giving them perhaps more leeway to negotiate and compromise once they're in office? So the idea here, I think the big lesson to be learned is that uh, the critiques of the FEC are, are largely misplaced. The difficulty may be in the project itself, but a bigger lesson I hope that we can gain from that is that we need to be a little bit careful in thinking that we can take these p- tough political issues and solve them simply by putting them into a less accountable technocratic body. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Our second speaker today and our second author is Professor Richard Pierce. He is the Lyle T. Alverson Professor of Law at George Washington University's School of Law. Uh, He's taught and researched in the fields of administrative law and regulation for 40 years, has published a panoply of books and articles. Uh, Among many other things, he is a senior fellow at the Administrative Conference of the United States. At our last conference uh, a few weeks ago on OIRA, he was one of the featured speakers, and he is back today speaking about his new article, a realistic version of campaign finance reform, and two essential steps towards a return to effective governance. Thanks, Adam. Uh, If you were looking forward to a debate, you're going to be disappointed. I'm not sure I heard a thing that Brad said that I disagreed with, and I heard a lot that I agreed with uh, enthusiastically. I I look at the structure of the FEC in my paper, but I I look at the decision-making by Congress with respect to that structure to support the inference that Congress, members of Congress, politicians are obsessed with re-election, so uh, there's plenty of other evidence to support that proposition that that triumphs over all other factors in their decision-making process. And I look at some of the the data. First, as I I think you probably know, uh, there are very strict and pretty low limits on how much money you can donate to a candidate's campaign. At the moment, it's $2,800 to any candidate's campaign. Uh, there are no limits and can't be any limits on uh, uh, the 
uh, amount of money you can contribute to a PAC that is allied with a, uh, a candidate. And we know that uh, uh, lots of people contribute millions, some tens of millions, and a few, a hundred million or more to uh, uh, the PACs. So then how do uh, the candidates and the PACs behave? Well, 85% of the candidate ads are positive. 93% of the PAC ads are negative. And if you look at any of the studies on the effects of political ads, you can see why that's the case. Uh, what we know is that negative ads drive uh, down the favorable impressions of the opponent, but at the same time, they drive down the favorable Im uh, impressions of the sponsor of the ad. PACs don't have to worry about that. Candidates do. So candidates are really quite... Uh, uh, timid, uh, they very go, go very lightly on the negative ads and they let the uh, PACs do all of the work there and the PACs ads are almost entirely negative. I think that really has a horrible corrosive effect on public opinion of, of politicians and uh, political institutions because everybody who wins an election, the public thinks they're a crook because they have believed all of these negative ads. Uh, I, I also, you know, the PACs, the reason that there, there, uh, uh, the, the, there can't be limits constitutionally on the contributions to the PACs is that they are putatively independent of the, the candidates, and that puts them under the protective umbrella of the First Amendment. But the literature is really pretty solid. That independence requirement is, is uh, impossible to enforce in practice. There's tremendous leakage uh, between the candidates' campaigns and, and the independent PACs. So what would I do in that context? Well, I'd, I'd eliminate all uh, uh, limits on contributions to candidates. Go out and get as much money as you can each candidate. Uh, I, I think and hope that over time that would cause most of the money to flow to candidates and, and much less to flow to PACs, and that would produce a lot more positive ads than negative ads and I think that would be very good for, for the country. The other thing I would do is I, I would require effective, full, immediate disclosure of all significant no donations. That turns out to be very, very difficult to accomplish. It requires a com complicated combination of actions by Congress, the FEC, the IRS, and the courts. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite a daunting task. I think there's a decent chance of, of accomplishing it. Um, uh, and, and that would then create a, a regime in which uh, uh, it, it's not the laws that limit uh, your, your campaign funding. It is the people who vote for you who determine whether uh, they distrust you because they distrust or dislike some major donor to your campaign. Um, uh, and I've got down here a, a, a reference to one Oh, darn. I forgot to click it over. Yeah, one case, FEC versus Aiken, Supreme Court opinion, that uh, um, uh, helps in, this, in implementing this agenda by saying that voters have standing to uh, obtain judicial review of any uh, FEC decision that has the effect of not requiring disclosure in some context. And then one D.C. Circuit opinion that I find disappointing where the D.C. Circuit uh, refused to hold that uh, a, a court can review a three-to-three -three decision of the FEC not to act. And I, I think that was a, 
a bad decision, and I hope that either the D.C. Circuit revisits that, as it may, or uh, uh, the Supreme Court overturns it. So that's what I do on campaign finance reform. Now, the other thing that I, I want to talk about is, is beyond the scope of our panel, but well within the scope of the, the, the conference. I'm very concerned about the, the total inability of Congress to legislate, except uh, uh, every few months when we're otherwise going to close the government. Congress cannot legislate at all. Uh, and this is cre creating tremendous problems. I speak at conference after conference where everybody is upset because of president, whether it's Barack Obama or, or uh, uh, Donald Trump, has done something that uh, seems to be way stretching uh, the president's powers. And we just heard last week a speech from the chief justice saying, you know, you're putting us, Congress is putting us in a terrible bind. We're called upon to decide what to do about climate change when uh, under a statute enacted in 1970, what to do about uh, the Internet under a statute enacted in 1934, what to do about waters of the United States under a statute enacted in 1899. These are all issues that should be addressed by Congress and cannot be addressed by Congress at present. Congress has lost the ability to legislate. So uh, the root of the problem here, obviously, is political polarity. I do not have any any magic solution to that problem. But I do think that our electoral and institutional rules make the problem far worse. So legislation in vast majority of circumstances requires bipartisan compromise. I spent a fair amount of time on Capitol Hill. And every time I talk to a member of either party and I say, you know, I was just talking to your colleague on the other side of the aisle about this issue and you two aren't very far apart. I bet if you got together, you could come up with a compromise. If I'm even seen walking in his office, I'll be primaried. I'm dead meat. If I move, if I move toward the center to make a compromise, I'm in terrible trouble. I'm going to be primary. The vast majority of states and the vast majority of congressional districts are safe in the sense that one party or the other candidate will win the seat. So the only jeopardy to the re-election prospects of the members of the vast majority of, of uh, members of, of, of Congress in both houses is the risk of primary. And, and the, the risk of being primary is very easy to avoid. If you're a Democrat, you go as far left as you can. You stay as far left as you can. You never move to the center to compromise. If you're a Republican, you go as far right as you can, and you stay there, and you never move in the direction of Compromise, okay? So what would I do? By the way, primaries, uh, primaries we know from a lot of studies are low turnout elections that favor people who are on the far left in the Democratic Party, the far right on, on the Republican Party. So that means any time any member moves toward the center to compromise with any other member that they immediately are threatened explicitly or implicitly but being primaried, and they say, oh, I'm not going not gonna to do that. So what would I do? I would eliminate primaries and return to the, selection of the, the system of selection of candidates by peers that we had before the 1970s and that most dem democracies in the rest of the world have. Uh, and I, I think that would get us part of the way because it would, it would create an electoral environment in which uh, a lot more moderates would be elected and people would not be constantly in terror 
of, of being primaried out of office if they move toward the center in order to, to compromise. And then the second, my second proposed solution is uh, I, I look at the way that we choose, uh, the way that the, the agenda is set in both the House and the Senate, and who sets the agenda and how that person is selected. And, of course, they're selected at present by the party caucus. And that creates a situation in which you could easily have, and we'd have it on a fairly regular basis, a situation in which a bill would get a majority vote, sometimes a strong majority vote in support of the bill, but it can't make it to the floor because a majority of the party of the leader of the House or the Senate opposes it, even though that's a minority uh, of the members of the chamber. So the way I would address that has actually already been proposed by the no labels group uh, in the in the House and Senate. I would change the rules for choosing uh, the, the the person who controls the agenda in the House and the Senate by saying that person can only get that position by obtaining a two thirds majority vote, uh, and that would force uh, the people who run for the office to be uh, completely different in terms of their their incentives. Uh, and it would cause them much more frequently to put bills on the floor because they believe that a majority of the chamber supports the bill, not just that a majority of the members of their party support the bill. So that's what I would do. And, and uh, I, I've had a number of people say, ask me, well, what do you think the chances are of that ever happening? And my answer is, they're really slim. But I don't see how the hell we're going to continue as a country unless we can return to legislating. Uh, Ron had Ron always has wonderful jokes, and he had one this morning that he shared with me uh, uh, that somebody came across uh, the, the remains of Washington 200 years uh, hence, and they went through the rubble, and they said, oh, my God, there was a time when this society passed legislation. Who knew? Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that's... Very funny, but there's a lot of truth to it. So that's my contribution. Thank you. So our third speaker this morning is Professor Chara Torres-Spellacy. She is a Brennan Center Fellow and Professor of Law at Stetson University's College of Law. Prior to joining Stetson's faculty, Professor Torres Spellacy was counsel in the democracy program of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University's School of Law. She's testified before Congress as an expert on campaign finance reform. We're very glad she can join us today. And I will add, her latest book is titled Political Brands. It was published this year by Edward Elgar Publishing. Uh, and the Gray Center is, is very proud to, to have copies that we'll be distributing um, complimentary. They'll be outside, outside later today, but please do take a look. Okay. Professor? Good morning. You, you have to, you, okay, we're going to do that again. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Uh, my name is Chara Torres Felicy, and I'm going to talk about why the 2020 election is already giving me heartburn, as well as my new book, and these things are not unrelated. But let me start here. This is a picture of my dad. He was an artist and a very creative thinker. And when I was a youngster, he would say to me, Chara, remember to ask the big questions. The big question that I've been working on for about the past decade is what's the proper role of corporate money in a democracy? 
I think this was the subject of my first book, uh, Corporate Citizen. And if I'm being honest, uh, it's the subject of my second book, Political Brands, as well. So a big theme of political brands is how branding is overtaking truth. And so each chapter is a different aspect of American political life that is being rebranded. So I have chapters like branding treason, branding greed, branding corruption, branding tragedy, and branding truth. Today I'm going to focus on branding truth and branding corruption. And in, in case I'm being too subtle, when I say that we are rebranding truth, I mean people are lying. And I chose lying and corruption because I think these are the two things that cause the greatest existential threat to the integrity of our democracy in 2020. And we have just seen um, our political system sorely tested. Uh, this is the declassified call between President Trump and the President of the Ukraine. And what concerns me is that I don't see a legal response to what I consider breaking of the law. Um, so you can see from the transcript that was released from the White House that uh, the President of Ukraine uh, talks about buying javelins, which is an arms um, system, uh, from the United States. And then the next line from President Trump is, I would like you to do us a favor, though. So the rest of us, I'm not going to focus on um, Trump and Zelensky, but I want to give you sort of a context in which multiple systems are failing all at the same time. And the systems that I see failing are what the Supreme Court is up to, what the FEC is up to, and what the DOJ is up to. So the Supreme Court sets ground rules for elections. And you might ask, has the Supreme Court talked about either lying in elections or lying in general? And indeed, there are two cases on point. The first one is called the Susan B. Anthony List case. So Susan B. Anthony List is an anti-choice group. They ran this ad against Congressman Dryhouse, um, accusing him of voting for taxpayer-funded abortion. And the only problem with this is that they were lying. And this lie ran afoul of a then-in-place Ohio statute, which made it a crime to lie about a candidate's record. But when this Ohio statute was applied to Susan B. Anthony, they challenged the constitutionality of the statute. Now, when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was not looking at the merits of the law. They were asking a procedural question, basically, could this case move forward? And the Supreme Court said, indeed, yes, this case can move forward. And lower courts then found the Ohio statute unconstitutional under the First Amendment because it limited your ability to lie. This is the Congressional Medal of Honor. This is Xavier Alvarez. Xavier Alvarez claimed he had won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, Xavier Alvarez was lying. Uh, and when he did this particular lie, 
It violated a then-in-place federal statute, which made it a crime to lie about earning uh, congressional medals if you hadn't actually earned them. So when Alvarez is prosecuted for violating the Stolen Valor Act, his attorneys then challenged the constitutionality of the Stolen Valor Act, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in the Alvarez case, the Supreme Court says that the Stolen Valor Act violates uh, the Constitution under the First Amendment because it limits your ability to lie. So, you know, oversimplifying greatly and summing up this part of the law, the Supreme Court will strike down statutes that require truthfulness. So we can then think, well, what has the Supreme Court done in the area of corruption? Now, the Roberts Supreme Court has greatly narrowed the definition of corruption in two different areas of law, one in campaign finance cases and the other in white-collar crime cases. And one of the ways you can see the impact that the Roberts Supreme Court has had on this area of the law is looking at its predecessor, the Rehnquist Court. So the Rehnquist Court had a very capacious definition of corruption. I think they were thinking of corruption in a systemic way. And you can see it in the language that they use in cases like McConnell or in cases like Nixon. Um, corruption is a subversion of the political process. So that's a really broad way of thinking about corruption. Now, by contrast, the Roberts Supreme Court has been narrowing what counts as corruption. And you can see that in the very different language that they use in cases like Citizens United. And you can see their narrowness in the McCutcheon case, where they have essentially narrowed what counts as corruption to just quid pro quo exchanges. But wait, there's more. The, the Robert Supreme Court is also on the move in the area of white collar crime. This is Jeff Skilling. He ran a company called Enron. He ran it quite corruptly. He broke several securities laws in running Enron. Uh, this earned him originally 24 years in prison. But he challenged his conviction, and in particular, he challenged his prosecution under the Honest Services Fraud Statute. And when this gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court agrees with Mr. Skilling that this was an inappropriate use of the Honest Services Fraud Statute um, because they read that statute to only apply to bribes or kickbacks, otherwise known as quid pro quos. This is Governor Bob McDonald of Virginia. This is his Rolex watch. Um, he did not buy the watch himself. Rather, uh, this man, Johnny Williams, who was a businessman who wanted to sell tobacco pills to the employees of the state of Virginia, uh, gave him this Rolex watch and a lot of money and other gifts. Uh, and the governor set up certain meetings on Mr. Williams' behalf. And because of that, the, the governor is prosecuted and convicted. But he challenges his conviction. And uh, it goes up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decides that just setting up these meetings on Mr. Williams' behalf is something that the governor would do for any constituent. And thus, it was not an official act, 
and thus they vacate the conviction of Governor McDonald. So, again, oversimplifying and summing up this part of the law, the Supreme Court has narrowed what counts as corruption in criminal law. Okay, so that was all Article Three land. Let's go over to Article Two land. Um, meanwhile, we have the Federal Election Commission. And about a month ago, they lost their quorum. So even if they felt inclined to enforce campaign finance law, now they are basically um, nearly powerless to uh, enforce campaign finance law until they get their quorum back. But even before they lost their quorum, they weren't up to much. For example, over the past decade, the, the FEC has failed to make rules that would make our elections more transparent. These would be anti-dark money rules. Uh, they've refused to make regulations for online electioneering communications. So right now, there's no such thing as an online electioneering commu communication. A communi an electioneering communication in order to be regulated has to appear on broadcast. But if this exact same ad is you know, given to you in your Twitter feed or on Facebook, it's, it falls outside of regulatory authority right now. And the FEC uh, declined to investigate alleged ties between Russians and the NRA. So I am deeply worried about this and what it means for the election that we are already going through. I think the 2020 election is going to be vulnerable to dark money, uh, to disinformation campaigns, especially disinformation campaigns from foreign governments. And I think not having a functioning regulator just invites breaking of the law. Now, one thing that will disincentivize really crude breaking of the law is the DOJ still has jurisdiction over willful violations of campaign finance law. And you can just ask Michael Cohen, who was actually prosecuted for violating campaign finance laws and is now imprisoned. But if you're talking about the President of the United States, uh, DOJ has a long-standing memo that says that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And so I'm sort of worried that our current legal regime doesn't capture things like the Trump-Zelensky call. Now, of course, we're all just reading the tea leaves. None of us know how this story is going to end. Uh, but I'm concerned because we have a Supreme Court that is deregulating corruption and allowing lying in elections. We have a FEC that lacks a quorum. And then we have a DOJ that has tied its own hands with respect to the sitting president. And of course, if you'd like to learn more, I hear there's a book about it. <laughs> and my current mood is pretty grim right now. Um, but I didn't want to leave you totally hopeless. So I would say to all of us, <laughs> keep calm and good luck. And because I work on election reform, I would say also, stay calm and go vote. Because ultimately, the hands of American democracy is in the hands of every American voter. And the, I think the, the big tragedy would be if people got so turned off by politics 
that they gave up on the democratic process. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our final speaker on this morning's first panel is Trevor Potter. He is the founder and president of the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C. He's former chairman of the FEC and was general counsel to the presidential campaign of Senator John McCain in 2000 and 2008. Uh, he often appears on television and in the media, and he practices law at the firm of Kaplan and Drysdale. Trevor? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I thank the, the, the Gray Center for gathering this group and having what I think is an important uh, discussion. Uh, I uh, perhaps am here in the role of the sand in the oyster uh, designed to produce the pearl uh, by uh, disagreeing uh, with some of what has been said in the hopes that we can tease out some of the uh, contradictions we have, uh, but by no means all of what has been said. Um, I uh, certainly uh, appreciated Chiara's uh, presentation and agree that the court has taken uh, what I think is a dangerously narrow view of what constitutes corruption. As she pointed out, uh, the view the current court takes is very different than the uh, court's that actually experienced Watergate and the public revulsion with what they had seen in the selling of official governmental results. Uh, and I think the idea that the public will not find self-dealing or the selling of official acts or the tilting of official decisions towards uh, large contributors, donors, and people giving you uh, valuable watches uh, simply misreads where the the public is. Uh, this is, uh, I think, nowhere clearer than in the distinction between what Justice Kennedy said in Citizens United, uh, and I would remind you that he made the point that he did not believe that the selling of access would result in the public thinking there was corruption. Uh, when I put that statement up on a slide when I'm giving a talk, I have learned to pause because the audience reads it twice and starts laughing. Uh, I think there is a real gap between uh, what the court thinks the public thinks and what everything else tells us. Uh, in terms of disclosure, I uh, agree with Professor Pierce on the importance of disclosure. Uh, I think the problem is that disclosure is not working in practice, as he noted. Uh, I would lay that uh, in the current administrative sphere uh, at the FEC's uh, doorstep because of the deadlocks it's had on that issue. It's important to recall that the Citizens United decision upheld and praised federal disclosure laws. That's the 8-1 part of the opinion in which Justice Kennedy said that citizens can see whether elected officials are in the pocket of so-called moneyed interests and that disclosure will enable the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and messages. And I think that's Professor Pierce's uh, point as well. However, Justice Kennedy uh, admitted uh, several years later in a talk at Harvard Law School that, quote, something is wrong 
that disclosure is, quote, not working the way it should. Well, why is that? Uh, I believe the FEC deadlocks on disclosure issues is a good place to start. Remember that after Citizens United came down, it took the FEC years to write rules implementing that decision. Why is that? Because there was a deadlock on the commission about whether the rules implementing Citizens United should say anything about the disclosure part of that decision. Ultimately, after several years, they gave up and wrote rules that never mentioned the disclosure part and simply removed the corporate ban from the regulations. Uh, then in 2015, the FEC deadlocked again on whether to even open a rulemaking on disclosure. On the enforcement side, the FEC has similarly failed to uphold Citizens United's promise of disclosure. For example, in one case, commissioners deadlocked thus blocking an investigation to determine whether a dark money nonprofit should disclose its donors because the argument was its major purpose was federal election activity and therefore it should be registered as a political committee disclosing its donors. This was true even after the FEC's attorneys had reviewed the group's spending and calculated that the group had devoted more than 68% of its total spending on influencing elections. Uh, Professor Pierce notes that outside spending is overwhelmingly negative uh, and has a corrosive effect on public opinion. I totally agree with him on that. And you look at the huge amount of outside spending there, and there is a tendency to say, well, we can't do anything about that. So, and that leads to the argument, we should have moved the money directly to candidates uh, or parties. Uh, the reality is we can do something about all of that outside spending, not the negative ads, but the way it is raised and thus the amount that is raised and spent because the Supreme Court in Citizens United said narrowly, only, that outside spending totally and wholly independent of candidates was a constitutionally protected First Amendment right and could not be limited. That if spending is coordinated with candidates, then it may be limited and is limited uh, by law. But Professor Pierce says it's impossible or it has proven impossible to regulate uh, that sort of spending. Uh, I would submit to you that it can be regulated, it just isn't being regulated by the current FEC, again because of 3-3 ties. Since Citizens United, the FEC has not found a single violation on the rules on coordination. So that must mean we all know that candidates aren't coordinating with PACs but there are all these complaints that have been filed with the FEC showing evidence of coordination. What's happened? The FEC has repeatedly deadlocked on whether to even begin an investigation or has failed to simply vote on a number of cases before it 
because any commissioner can kick the can down the road and request that the matter be delayed. Uh, in one case, the Jeb Bush Right to Rise Super PAC, a presidential candidate and his advisors set up a super PAC before he formally declared his candidacy. Then, Governor Bush directly fundraised for the group for months, and by the time he officially entered the race, his super PAC had stockpiled millions to support his presidential bid. The person who had been his principal campaign advisor then moved over to head the wholly independent super PAC. The FEC has not resolved this matter still. In another case, correct the record, the Clinton campaign super PAC, the FEC deadlocked and declined to even investigate a super PAC that had publicly acknowledged that it coordinated with a Democratic presidential candidate's campaign. The group's founder said it worked, quote, under the thumb of the campaign. Despite the recommendation from the FEC legal counsel that the campaign and the super PAC had violated the law by coordinating up to $9 million in unreported spending, the FEC again deadlocked and dismissed the matter at the reason to believe stage. This is not a partisan dispute at the commission, as I think people here understand. It was the Republican commissioners who did not want to investigate the uh, coordinated activity with the Clinton campaign and the Democratic commissioners who did want to investigate it. But it is a ideological dispute about whether the FEC is going to enforce the coordination rules that were the basis for the Supreme Court's Citizens United uh, decision. This year we're seeing even more, if that's possible, open coordination between candidates and super PACs. Earlier this year, in a dispute about a uh, supposedly independent group that was raising money in the Trump name, the Trump campaign sent out an email to its supporters saying, quote, there is one approved outside non-campaign group, America First Action which is run by allies of the president and is a trusted supporter of President Trump's policies and agendas. So you have an open endorsement of the wholly independent outside group. Now, this is, I think, clearly contrary to the Supreme Court's entire theory in Citizens United and something that a different FEC uh, would be doing something about. Now, deadlocks. Uh, Professor Smith argues in his paper that many of the supposed design defects of the FEC are not bugs, but rather features. One of these is the creation of an even-numbered commission, which some have argued uh, was supposed to deadlock. That's why it's even-numbered. Well, first, I would note that the FEC deadlocked relatively infrequently in the first 30 years of its existence. And I'll talk in a moment about uh, the back and forth over does it deadlock or not deadlock, but I think Professor Smith and I agree that there has been a change in the commission uh, and that it certainly deadlocks more now than it did before. But for the first 30 years, uh, there were relatively few deadlocks. I can recall one deadlock 
during my years on the commission. Uh, I think this is because commissioners viewed their job as ensuring that the law was applied even-handedly to both parties. Uh, as Professor Smith notes, I think Congress's desire was to ensure that no party got control of the commission and used it as a weapon against the other party. That's different than saying the commission shouldn't do anything, that three commissioners can prevent all action by the commission. Uh, I think in my days, my colleagues on the commission would have been embarrassed by a run of 3-3 deadlocks and a resulting FEC failure to open investigations, resolve violations, or even give advice through advisory opinions. But the commissioners have clearly changed since then. Don't take my word for it when I say there is no evidence Congress deliberately designed the FEC to fail. Look at the statute, as Professor Pierce noted. Congress specifically allowed for judicial review of FEC inaction through citizen suit challenges. There are two key provisions that say that any party aggrieved by an order of the commission dismissing a complaint or failing to act on it may go to court. Uh, indeed, they may bring the complaint directly to the judge in some circumstances. I submit that these provisions show that Congress was aware of the possibility of deadlocks. You can't design a six-member commission, uh, no more than three of any one party require a four-vote majority to take any action and think there will never be deadlocks, but Congress provided a way for the matters to be dealt with. Uh, the problem we have today is that the courts have significantly narrowed this statutory provision, starting with standing, as Professor Pierce noted, uh, leaving it to a much narrower informational standing uh, rather than anyone filing a complaint. Then the whole administrative law issue, which I find fascinating and I think is somewhat now in dispute, of deferring to the 3-3 three, three vote as a way of saying the agency acted and therefore deferring to the views of the three commissioners who decided not to go forward with the general counsel's recommendation. Uh, I, it may sound like semantics, but I don't think it is to say that I think there's a difference between saying a 3-3 vote is commission action on the one hand and on the other saying that a 3-3 vote is on its face, the inability of the commission to act, and that given that deadlock, the commission then acts by closing the matter because it cannot go forward. But that does not mean it has resolved or acted on the underlying complaint and substantive issue. And finally, there's been a recent dispute in the courts over whether uh, mentioning the words prosecutorial discretion in explaining why the commission is deadlocked is sufficient to uh, close all judicial uh, review. There's some signs that each of these is being rethought. Uh, in a uh, decision this very week, uh, Judge Cooper of the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia allowed a citizen review suit 
by Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility to proceed, he said on the issue of prosecutorial discretion, what precludes judicial review then is not a talismanic recitation of the phrase prosecutorial discretion, but rather reliance by the FEC on factors particularly within its expertise when exercising that discretion. So finally, um, let me close by uh, remembering that wonderful phrase that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. I think how you look at the numbers of whether the FEC is deadlocking uh, depends very much on uh, what perspective you are taking. Let me note first that I think Professor Smith and I again agree that there has been a change at the Commission. So looking at the period of time from 1977 to the present and coming up with quite low numbers of deadlocks does not tell us what's actually happening now or has been happening for the last five or ten years. Uh, just recently, the FEC itself told the Committee on House Administration that since 2012, the Commission has deadlocked in a majority of the enforcement matters it has considered. And remember that some of those include the non-important votes. So I think it's fair to say that on the important issues, the deadlock is even higher than a majority. So just pause for a second and think about that. It means that the Commission has told Congress that it doesn't occasionally or sporadically deadlock on enforcement actions. It deadlocks most of the time today. Now, that's, there are a couple quick examples here. In 2016, the FEC deadlocked on whether to even investigate a complaint about a shell corporation that had given nearly $1 million to a super PAC supporting candidate Obama. Uh, they deadlocked, the matter closed, it's over. Unfortunately for the FEC, the Department of Justice kept going and ultimately revealed that the super PAC contribution had not only been laundered through the Shell Corporation, but also that the money had in fact come from a foreign fugitive. Deadlocks have also arisen in advisory opinions. According to the Brennan Center, between 2008 and 17, the deadlock rate on advisory opinions jumped to 24.1% on average, again, far more than the overall average for the Commission during the time of its existence. And finally, as I mentioned in the disclosure context, Deadlocks have also plagued the rulemaking process. By the FEC's own admission in its responses to the House Admin Committee this year, it has promulgated one substantive rule since 2012. Now, there may be people in the room who think a federal agency not issuing any new rules is a good thing, but I would note that the reason for that is, again, that it has deadlocked 3-3 on numerous proposals to even initiate a rulemaking procedure. Proposals for reform, uh, under one reform proposal, in the case of a tied vote, the Office of the General Counsel recommendation would go forward. Put another way, four votes would be needed to reject the general counsel's recommendation 
to find reason to believe a violation had occurred and it could proceed with an investigation. This seems to me appealing because it ends up uh, with a situation where the investigation proceeds, but it does not result in official agency action because the FEC does not have the statutory power to fine anyone. All it can do is investigate, end up with a voluntary agreement, or go to court and try to convince a neutral fact finder that a violation has occurred. And this seems to me an appropriate way to deal with the current deadlock. Great. Thanks, Thanks. Reverend. Now, a lot's been put on the table. I have a couple of questions, but before uh, we get to those, I did want to give Professor Smith and Professor Pierce an opportunity to weigh in on anything that's been discussed so far. Uh, Professor Smith? I, w I would like to weigh in. I, uh, <laughs> I, I've, Trevor took about twice and a half as much time as I took as the presenting panelists, and it makes it tough to respond. There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, for example, the idea that the FEC has admitted to Congress that it deadlocked in over half the matters. As I pointed out, what it said to Congress was it has deadlocked on at least one vote at some point in the procedure in over half the matters. And if you actually, and, and even then, that's only based on MERS on which they actually took votes and does not include MERS in which went uh, on tally, does not include administrative fines, does not include uh, alternative dispute resolution. Uh, but I don't know, it may be that Trevor wasn't listening during that part of my presentation when I specifically addressed those particular items. Um, there are a number of, of things to be addressed here in both. Let me um, first do a quick point on something Ch uh, Chara mentioned. She mentioned the Susan B. Anthony suit. Now, I know the suit pretty well, having filed a brief in that case on behalf of the Ohio Attorney General in a special appearance. And she knows that the problem with the claim that Dry House voted for public funding of abortion was that it was a lie. Actually, the problem with the statute was twofold. One, that the state was going to make that judgment. And two, in this particular case, that what Susan Anthony said was the truth, that it required public funding of abortion. The, if you remember that dispute, I won't go into great detail, but this was a big concern. Could they get these pro-life Democrats on board? So they agreed to what some people viewed as an accounting gimmick by which funds wouldn't directly go, but they'd be shifted around. And that's an argument. That's a debatable argument, then, whether it provided for public funding for abortion. But we don't even need to go to that question of whether it was an account at Gimming or not. The president's executive order that limited the ability to, quote, spend public money on abortion said, except in cases of rape, incest, or when the life of the woman would be in danger. So under the president's own order, it was obviously true and intended that public funds would go for abortion. Now, only in cases of rape, incest, or when the life of the mother is in danger. But I've never heard of a political rule that says you have to present your opponent's case or the, or the issue in the light favored by your opponent. And I mention this because this shows the tremendous difficulty of starting to regulate in this area. And you can't just kind of start saying, oh, well, that's clearly untrue, that's fake news or whatever, and therefore it can be regulated. That most things in politics have different ways of twisting them. Moving back to a number of Trevor's comments, though, I want to go to a, a few things here. Trevor seems to believe that if you say deadlock often enough, people will be convinced that's a real problem. But again, never he's he dispute why any of the particular cases he's upset about, he would have been happy to lose three to two. 
It is certainly true that the FEC could have voted not to open a rulemaking on a vote of three to two or four to three. It is certainly true that they could have voted not to open investigations on votes of three to two or four to three rather than three to three if they had an odd number of commissioners. But it doesn't change the issue that you're trying to make into a question of administrative law where it's actually a substantive law disagreement. Uh, For example, when we look at the uh, Citizens United decision on disclosure, um, yes, it took the FEC a long time to write rules. Why did it take a long time to write rules? Because commissioners who took the position Trevor took wanted the FEC to write rules that would include new forms of disclosure. And other commissioners said, wait a minute, that's not in our statute. Our statute doesn't provide for regulation of that. The Citizens United decision upheld a particular federal government disclosure statute. That's what it upheld. It did not say to the FEC, therefore you have the power to go out and regulate whatever the heck you want, right? It said, here, this statute is constitutional. Some commissioners, supported by Trevor, said, yes, let's do more. Other commissioners said, I don't think we can do that. That's a classic ideological dispute, uh, a classic dispute of statutory interpretation by the people who were appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, right? And he then doesn't explain why he would have preferred to lose that vote four to two, five to one, or six to nothing. Um, he, uh, uh, and, and eventually, you know, again, some of the commissioners finally said, okay, we'll write some, the rules that, that everybody agrees that we need to write, probably the proper compromise position. Um, he, raised, he raises, for example, one pack. He says, well, the general counsel determined that it was 68% of their spending was on federal elections, so they should have been regulated as a pack. But that raised a number of very difficult questions. of the spending, when? On one day? Well, nobody's going to go with that. On one quarter, right? In one year, in an entire election cycle, since the organization was formed. And that was the nature of of the dispute. And depending on how you cut it, you got much lower percentages. And of course, most organizations that, that do some political spending, but it's not their major purpose, will ramp up that political spending in the quarter or the half year or even the year right before the election, right? But that may not be indicative of the group's true measure. Now, I think that's a legitimate exchange to have, but it's not like this is some obvious thing and you've just got commissioners won't do it, right? And even if commissioners won't do it, your problem is with particular commissioners. It's not an administrative law problem about how the commission is set up. And again, it's interesting that this critique goes on and on and on for 30 years. It doesn't matter who the commissioners are, right? The commissioners change. We're told over and over again, deadlock, they deadlock all the time, they deadlock all the time. And Trevor, 20 years ago, saying a very different story, signing on to a report saying they deadlock all the time, a report by an organization called Democracy 21, at a time when the deadlock rate was 2 or 3%, right? So I don't think his problem is really deadlocks. I think he just doesn't like what they're doing. And in an administrative law conference, I think it's important to think about what is the structure of the administrative law and how do we pull people up to do these things. Um, coordination is another very, very difficult thing. The fact is you don't need to coordinate much with a super PAC, right? It's all out there publicly. It's publicly disclosed who your donors are by law, right? It's publicly disclosed your ad buys by law, okay? How much brains does it take to figure out what a campaign needs? And that's what people have found over the course of the coordination. You don't have to coordinate to spend. Now, there may be arguments about independent spending, and those are arguments we can have another day, whether the Supreme Court's right or not. But to say that that the FEC simply won't enforce coordination rules is to beg the question as to whether coordination is occurring and to try to substitute yourself for the people who are actually entrusted with the power at the FEC 
And exactly the point of my paper, which is to, to try to substitute the idea that you've got an administrative law problem when what you really have is a very, very difficult substantive issue that I think, as Richard says, probably makes it uh, impossible or at least extremely difficult to get the kind of results that you want to have. Again, I won't filibuster, so I'll stop there because otherwise I'd go on for another 20 or 30 minutes. But I firmly agree there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, and your job is to sort out who's saying what. Uh, Professor Pierce, uh, you had a couple of things you wanted yeah, to Yeah, just speak two to. points. One, one quick point. Uh, I, I would urge everybody to read, once it becomes available, my colleague Miriam Galston's uh, forthcoming article in Georgetown Law Journal. She's sending off the page proofs today, so it should be pretty soon. It's entitled Citizens United 2.0, and it makes, to me, a powerful case that there is, in fact, uh, coordination and that it's impossible to stop it. She doesn't get into the the why part that the divides Brad and Trevor, but uh, uh, she makes, I think, a powerful case that that it's happening and, and that you can't stop it. Uh, uh, she uses that as a basis to conclude that the Supreme Court should overturn Citizens United on the basis that it was it was it's based on a false premise that there there can be such things as independent uh, uh, packs. But the, the the question I had is really for Chara that. Uh, I mean, as you noted, you were, you were kind of simplifying the holdings of those cases. I, I know those cases. And to me, they're all very, very similar to the case that Donald Trump hates most, New York Times versus Sullivan. And what they raise is, the, 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 not, they are, they're certainly not legitimating lying. It is uh, the, the question of, well, on what basis can you make a statement? Can you say Donald Trump is a crook, Hillary Clinton is a crook, Hunter Biden is a crook, or a nominee for the Supreme Court engaged in sexual assault of someone without first adjudicating in a court. That, and if you can't, well, we got a hell of a problem. And so trying to figure out when people can make claims and what kind of basis they have and, and, and when it crosses the line, that line drawing process is damned difficult, and it is not the same as legitimating lying. Let me, um, I have two questions of my own for the panel, and then we'll go to the audience. The first one, both Professor Smith and Professor Torres Spellacy both referred to the possibility of uh, uh, prosecutors, I gathered either federal or state prosecutors, in taking a, a, a lead in enforcing, or taking on a greater role in enforcing federal or state campaign finance laws. I hope I haven't mischaracterized that, the suggestion. But I'd be curious what the other panelists uh, think of this, whether that is something worth exploring. Professor Torres Felicy pointed out that at least at the federal level, there is the OLC opinion that complicates things with respect to at least one particular presidential candidate, the president. Um, but I'm just curious in general what you think about leaning more on those or even, say, uh, proposals to put more responsibility in things like the Securities and Exchange Commission to police the role of uh, spending in, in politics. Anybody? Trevor? Sure. sure. Um, it's interesting, I guess, what, what uh, the, the waves of opinion on this. Uh, the reason the FEC was created was twofold. Sorry, two of the reasons. There were others. Uh, but two of them were that Congress did not trust uh, a Justice Department to fairly decide election law issues. Its view was that it will be controlled by the president's party, whichever one that is. They just come out of the Watergate-Nixon experience. Um, but th their view was there ought to be some sort of independent, less partisan 
agency to decide these matters because we are concerned about somebody who reports directly to a partisan chief executive. Uh, so that's one reason to take it out of the prosecutorial system. The other is uh, the, the quite common and I, and I think sensible feeling that not everything is criminal. Uh, the FEC is a civil enforcement agency. It refers criminal matters to prosecutors, but it was a way to deal with matters without criminalizing them. And that seems to me appropriate. If you criminalize everything, uh, you are more likely, I think, to have no enforcement because people say, well, it's not important enough to send someone to jail. Uh, but you also run the risk, which is often commented on, that you are criminalizing political disputes. So for those two reasons, I, I would uh, think that, that that is uh, a dead end. Anybody else have thoughts on this? Yeah, sure, Professor. To your question of whether the Securities and Exchange Commission could um, provide some relief from dark money. I have uh, written on this extensively. There was a proposal by 10 bipartisan uh, corporate law professors asking the Securities and Exchange Commission to promulgate a rule which would say to publicly traded companies, you need to tell your investors where you're spending in politics. It got a million plus comments positively on uh, the SEC's uh, webpage, but uh, the SEC declined to do that rulemaking. Now, there would be good things about having the SEC do that rulemaking, and they have the authority under the 34 Act, because that would give transparency to publicly traded corporations. But you also have to realize the limits of that. That means it wouldn't, um, there wouldn't be similar rules for nonprofits. There wouldn't be similar rules for privately held corporations. There wouldn't be similar rules for wealthy individuals who want to spend in a dark way. Uh, so I think uh, more disclosure is better than less. Uh, and I hope that it, future SECs um, may consider it and, and take it seriously. Okay. I'll just have one other question. We'll go about five minutes long on this to give the audience uh, a chance to weigh in, too. Um, but you know, some references have been made to the, the current political or presidential election. Um, and, and we've obviously had some, you know, uh, interesting news developments in the last week or so. And in the middle of sort of the news reports, I've noticed that the current FEC chairwoman, um, Weintraub, is it? Mm -hmm. She has been making some public statements on Twitter, sort of um, not very subtly uh, criticizing uh, the president. And I'm curious what people make of this um, with individual members of the FEC, in particular the chair and vice chair, sort of either on their own or maybe collectively sort of proactively um, uh, criticizing actions by, uh, by presidential candidates or other candidates. Is that a good development or a bad development? I've called on her publicly to resign, so my position's fairly clear. <laughs> for, what, for this, this is, or for this other is, things? This is a commissioner who actually wrote her opinion in one matter in the form of a mad lib, I kid you not, and it's not a person to be taken seriously, but I think it's very detrimental to the rule of law. Uh, you know, I think commissioners are it's perfectly fine to be outspoken, say, here's my view of the law and so on, but she has aimed her comments specifically at people who are current candidates for office who may be appearing before the commission. She has publicly 
called uh, one of our keynote speakers later in the day all kinds of names at the very same time she was voting on matters affecting his clients. Uh, and I mean, fairly nasty names and accusing him of lying and misrepresenting things and subverting the rule of law and so on. And uh, no, I, I don't think it's appropriate. And as one who was a you know, fairly outspoken commissioner, uh, that's just the kind of thing we never dreamed of doing. Oh, she's also hijacked the commission's uh, 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 hearing room and resources to have hearings on things that are just, then she says, well, I'm just doing this as a personal thing. Uh, but I just happen to be chairman of the commission. We're having it at the commission on things outside of the commission's agenda. Um, you know, and, and I think, again, this goes to two things. One, why the commission, if we're going to have it, really should be bipartisan, uh, although you couldn't necessarily stop uh, this you know, sort of maverick behavior. But also, too, why it may be better to put it in and you know, go back to the idea that we have it in people who then are politically accountable uh, in a way that an appointed body is not. Uh, so. Dick, would you like to? Yeah, I just uh, basically I agree with Brad on that. I think anybody in the United States should be able to say the things she's been saying, except a member of the FEC. And a member, a current member of the FEC, should not be able to say that. And and certainly, if there's any adjudication uh, that comes before the agency uh, that involves any of the people that she has referred to uh, in various ways, uh, she is going to be held to be disqualified uh, as an a biased decision maker in contravention of, of, uh, of, of due process. I listened to her actually, ironically, on my way in this morning. And, and she tried to be kind of careful. So she'd say, oh, I'm not going to say that anything that Donald Trump has done is wrong. But I will say that anyone who does, and then she ticked off the things he's done, has, done, has violated, okay. I mean, I, I'm sorry. Everybody, anybody in the country should be able to express views on that, except somebody who's going to be could be called upon to adjudicate a dispute involving that issue. That's off limits. Uh, Professor uh, Torres Felicy or Mr. Potter. So I know we're running short on time. I would say one of the things I looked at in my book is the way that commercial branding is being used in politics to manipulate the electorate. And so I I think we are very used to, as consumers, not believing every commercial ad that comes across our TV screen. And so we've sort of inculcated in ourselves caveat emptor, which is buyer beware. And I think what we need for the 2020 election is caveat civis, which is citizens beware. Trevor, I saw your hand up, but I think we're going to go to audience questions, if that's okay. Um, I'd like to respond to Brad if I could. Well, really quick, because I, I do want to give everybody a chance to talk. Right, I'd yeah. just like a chance to. Oh, I know, I know. Um, so I would be more than happy to agree with uh, Professor Smith that uh, there are lots and lots of non-deadlocks at the commission on his terms, which is to say in non-important matters in alternative dispute resolution and the so-called traffic ticket. Uh, So, yes, you can play with the statistics and say uh, there are a limited number of deadlocks. They're only on the important matters, which is what I was trying to say. We're going to have time for two audience questions. There are microphones in the room. I want to make, there's two microphones. I want to give uh, definitely a chance for students to ask questions first. Okay, the first question is going to be right here. If anybody else has a question, raise your hand. There you go. 
Hi. So first of all, just thank you all for your time. This has been a really engaging and interesting discussion. Um, so I kind of wanted to jump back to a point that Professor Torres Belici brought up earlier about the lack of quorum currently in the FEC, because we've been debating a lot whether uh, the votes they've been taking or the lack of votes they've been taking are an inaction or an inaction or an action in of themselves. But I feel like that kind of that debate kind of goes away when you don't even have the ability to reach that quorum on a vote. So I'm just wondering. Um, do you, like, I want to open it up to, to the full panel. Do you believe that this is a conscious decision to hold up the appointment of new commissioners? Uh, and if so, or even if not, what can we do to sort of fast track this process and make sure that we get that quorum that's currently necessary? Well, I'll say a couple of things. First, uh, about the lack of the quorum. What's interesting is I hear a lot of press comments that are kind of like, oh, it's going to be a free for all. No, but you know, you can, you can do whatever you want. Actually, I don't think any, you know, there are some practitioners I know here. I don't think any practitioner would advise their client, oh, just go do whatever the hell you want. Because seats are going to be filled. The statute of limitations is not like three months, right? Uh, complaints will come in. They'll be sent out for respondents, for responses. People will have a chance to respond. To respond, the general counsel staff will do the analysis and make its original recommendation. All of these things take several months, typically, anyway. And so then eventually it will come to the commission, and assuming that at some point the commission will be reconstituted, those votes will be held. So oddly enough, the people who sort of benefit are not people in the 2020 campaign who now know there's no rules, they can do whatever they want. It's people who might have violated the rules in 2016 or even 2014 who uh, are now the FEC was just you know concluding its investigations and about to levy a fine, and now they don't have a quorum to take the final vote. Uh, so so the, it, it has a different dynamic than, than people actually uh, uh, think in, in that respect. But I think the, the seats will be filled, and, and pr- probably uh, they'll have a quorum restored relatively soon. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I can give you a brief answer. And I, I obviously don't know what motivates this president and when he does and does not nominate, except on those rare occasions when he actually says what he, why he's doing it. But uh, I, I will say that uh, over a lifetime, I've encountered many, many situations that were ambiguous where it could be that somebody was doing something for some incredibly carefully, strategically thought out reason, or it could be it was just plain old incompetence. 99% of the time, it turns out to be plain old incompetence. I don't know that that's the situation in this context, but in my experience, it almost always is. On that optimistic note, um, what we bring this, conclu- this uh, panel to a conclusion, we're going to take a 10-minute break, and we'll reconvene at quarter till with our second panel uh, focusing on the administration of elections. Thank you very much, everybody.